0: Welcome to life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne.
1: With the Advent of Citizens United ruling, which is which in effect created unlimited money from really anyone, including businesses and corporations, and then it can be easily anonymized through shell companies and front nonprofits and it has been that really shattered the control of the political parties of, of who gets to run and where. And now to be a political candidate, all you really need is either your own fortune or the backing of someone who has one.
2: My guest is the former Capitol Hill staffer, political scholar and author A.D. Altman, who many may agree has captured our current political times with his new book, Animal Town. You just heard A.D. Altman talk about big money in American politics His book is written for readers ages 12 and up, and it offers a cautionary lesson against extremism on all sides.
0: A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope.
2: A.D. Altman will offer us unique insights on what is happening in Washington these days and once again talk about money and its powerful part in the lives of many politicians. A.D. Altman will also tell us about his new book Animal Town which of course you will connect immediately to George Orwell's Animal Farm written with a different twist. I'm your host John Aden
1: Byrne. Uh, these days when a congressperson comes to the hill they become over the course of their term massively wealthier. And consistently, their portfolios outperform the market. And really, that's inexplicable unless there's insider trading, which which there is. We see all the time stories of insider trades being made just recently with regard to the pandemic. And now they don't return to their home districts, or at least they seldom do. They're much more likely to stay on in D.C., which is in a way sort of the new Rome, uh, and work for lobbying firms, work for lawyers, work for consultancies, and earn uh, many multiples of their uh, Congressional salaries, essentially being power brokers and influence brokers. Sherlock,
2: it's grand to have you back.
0: Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
2: My guest is A.D. Altman, the former Capitol Hill staffer, political
1: scholar, and author of the new book, Animal Town. Uh, thank you, John. I'm I'm happy to be here. Uh, this book is my uh, humble attempt to do what uh, George Orwell did in 1945 with his book uh, Animal Farm. Uh, my book is not a direct sequel. It's that it shares no the, none of the same characters, but in a way, it's a spiritual sequel uh, to Orwell's work. In that uh, Orwell was really seeking to. Uh, Show the dangers inherent uh, in communist, uh, the the totalitarian danger inherent in communist uh, Stalinist ideology through a simple uh, really children's story even uh, That's accessible to a wide audience I'm really taking that narrative arc uh, and placing it in contemporary uh, the United States where we have a prosperous capitalist society Um, But things start to go awry when um, species-based politics uh, starts to take over uh, Animal Town, and and well, ultimately, without giving away too much, um, some some potentially dangerous results.
2: Well, the timing is good because we see a lot of political extremism in America today. It's been building for a while. But you worked on Capitol Hill. Was that a different time in our country's history?
1: Yeah, I think it was. I, I worked on the Hill um, for about a year in 2006. This was during uh, George W. Bush's presidency when there was a Republican uh, majority uh, in the Senate. And, you know, you could see at that time, I didn't know it at the time, but some of the issues we discussed uh, that were before the Senate at that time involved immigration reform. And this is sort of when there was the gang of eight, the bipartisan group of Republican and Democratic senators that sought to create a, a really ultimate path to citizenship for current undocumented immigrants, as well as a host of other uh, border security and other, other measures. This was really the last bipartisan effort to do anything related to, to uh, immigration reform and it, it, it's failed spectacularly in 2006. And in, in a way you could sort of see the nativism that has come to be a strong plank of, of the, the really the, the platform of the right, uh, insipid in, in, that, in that failure. Other issues to be discussed were, um, the inheritance tax. At that time, it was trying to be, they were trying to raise the limit to around around $2 million. I, I, at, at these days, it's much higher than that. It's around $4 million um, before any inheritance is taxed. So some of the anti-tax and, and sort of nativist uh, murmurings from the right were apparent at that time. What really took me, and I think all, most Americans at least uh, by surprise, is really the parallel identitarianism that we've seen on the left in the last, you know, half dozen years, especially, but all the way back into around 2010, 11, 12. Uh, That took me by surprise. And I think it's uh, symptomatic of a number of things, uh, not least of which is uh, the Citizens United ruling uh, in, I believe, 2010, which essentially allowed an unlimited amount of uh, anonymous dollars uh, to go to political candidates, and as well as really the rise of social media and the ubiquity of social media that's really, uh, shattered the traditional uh, sources of news information and, and really a basic sense, agreed facts uh, that we used to be able to rely on in this country. So I think those are two of the major trends, but there are others uh, that were at least a little bit visible in 2006. But certainly uh, the, the breakdown has happened more rapidly than I anticipated.
2: Now, you worked for Senator Tim Johnson, who now is retired. He was a Democrat. How would he have fitted into today's political landscape?
1: Yeah, well, I don't want to speak for him and I'll, I have nothing but good things to say uh, about my time working with Senator Johnson about his his work, but I'll say in a, in a way, he his retirement represents the end or the decline of really a, a sadly dying breed of, of politician, namely one who is a moderate and votes not necessarily based on partisanship, but on what he thought was right. And his retirement, I think in 2014, is indicative of a, a lot of retirements or, or, or is like a lot of retirements we've seen from these formerly moderate Republicans and Democrats who overlapped. And this is in keeping with what you've seen. You can do a statistical analysis of, uh, you know, votes and how the extent to which they overlap by member. And you've seen those what, where they used to be much more overlapping and sort of like a bell curve with Republicans, and Democrats, you know, separated by a standard deviation or so. These days, we've really become a bipolar distribution. Republicans and Democrats Overlap not at all uh, or very little. And I think his his retirement is sort of uh, a harbinger of, of that change.
2: Well, he's not the only one who left. And then there was a lot of extremism bubbling up in the rear. Take New York City, where you had a, a pretty moderate Democrat by today's standards, Joe Crowley, who lost the seat, uh, a safe seat, some had believed to AOC, who, of course, is symptomatic of what we're seeing on the left. And then again, on the right, uh, the Republican side, somewhat argued argue that there's extremist forces emerging there as represented by Trump's candidacy. How do you see that?
1: Well, I think you've got an institutional uh, problem. And I-, I mentioned Citizens United, and I think that's a major factor. I mean, what that before Citizens United, United, the political parties themselves controlled most of the dollars that would ultimately th- flow to individual candidates. So they had a way of enforcing discipline and order on their potential candidates because they controlled the purse strings with, with the advent of Citizens United ruling, which is, which in effect created unlimited money from really anyone, including businesses and cor- corporations. Uh, And then it can be easily anonymized through shell shell companies and and front nonprofits, and it has been. What you've done is that allowed or really shattered the control of the political parties of of who gets to run and where. And now to be a political candidate, all you really need is either your own fortune or the backing of someone who has one. And they can then put forward their candidates uh, in any primary. And often you'll see that so that what that's done is it's destroyed the cohesion of, of the political parties and the control So whereas the Republican or Democratic Party may wish to run a more moderate candidate in a given district or state, uh, they're at risk if there's a billionaire who wants someone further to the left or right, uh, primarying them is now a verb uh, and and really taking the seat from the party. So we've seen uh, the increasing uh, impact of dollars in in politics um, and it's really to the detriment of the people, in my opinion.
2: Well, wasn't money always a big part of American politics? I mean, it's not exactly new, although now it's at a very extreme end of it. You hear stories that once you get elected your two-year term Congress, you pick up the phone and start fundraising again. It's sort of this never-ending slush fund. And now you have this whole phenomenon where a billionaire could influence policy in this country because of the way you
1: just laid it out. Yeah, indeed. And and you're right. I'm not naive to think that we're going to ever <laughs> Uh, managed to get money entirely out of politics, but we have seen a sea change uh, since the Supreme Court ruling I mentioned, and also just in terms of our political ethos. So uh, a generation or two ago, you know, a congressman or woman would come to Capitol Hill, they'd serve their time, and they'd return uh, to their home districts, and usually they would only become slightly enriched during that t- intervening intervening years. Uh, these days, when a congressperson comes to the hill, they become over the course of their term m- massively wealthier. Uh, and consistently, their portfolios outperform the market. And really, that's inexplicable unless there's insider trading, which which there is. We see all the time stories of insider trades being made just recently with regard to the pandemic. And now they don't return to their home districts, or at least they seldom do. They're much more likely to stay on in D.C., which is in a way sort of the new Rome, uh, and work for lobbying firms, work for lawyers, work for consultancies, and earn uh, many multiples of their uh, congressional salaries, essentially being power brokers and influence brokers uh, in Washington, D.C. And that's that's a real change uh, that, that has undermined, I think, the connection between uh, Congress and the people. So it really is the swamp that Trump was trying to clear out. Well, I mean, I'm not pessimistic. And, I, and individually, I am the last to condemn any one person. We have a systematic problem. And even Donald Trump himself is more of a symptom of our sort of our, our decline in public morals than he is personally. You know the the problem. I mean, it's far far too simple to pick any one person and say this is the issue. I I don't want to be too abstract here, but I mean, Plato had a good had a, has has some good insights on this. He said no one should be in power who who desires it. And in a way, I mean, I know that again, that's a naive hope. When people are quite clearly above the table, enriching themselves through their uh, service. I mean, it's supposed to be service, but through their Uh, elected roles, I mean, you have a breakdown in the public spirit. I mean, I think back to when uh, FDR was elected. This is, you know, the last century almost coming up on a century ago, but he exemplifies, I think, the public spirit. This was a man who was a uh, silver spoon from day one, born to the purple, a very aristocratic family for generations uh, related to a former president. And yet he, when his, his inauguration, he, I believe it was his inauguration, he gave this great speech where he says, never has more powerful capital and banks and financial interests been lined up against me. And he said, I welcome their hatred. And <laughs> I just try to imagine any politician saying that today, it's unconscionable. And again, look at the supposed sort of protest movement. And and, and there are legitimate claims there. But, you know, from coming what you saw over the last summer, the, the with the Black Lives Matter and everything else, when you see corporations rushing to get in line behind you, uh, that's usually the time you want to double check what side you're on and if you really have the interests of the working people and the common people uh, at heart when most major corporations are lining up to toe your line. That's that's usually a time when you should think twice. And again, I would just contrast that with the spirit that you saw from FDR and others like uh, like Kennedy who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, I mean, that's almost laughable. I mean, today's politicians are quite explicitly just saying their whole pitch is, I can make you the most money. Uh, and, and and that's not, there's more to life than than just being a, being alive and wealthy. I mean, we have to choose something beyond consumerism to, mm. uh, to live our lives in service of, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would share that view. You sound maybe embittered, maybe cynical, skeptical of the political system, and you can address that. But I'm wondering also the roots of our malaise, if you will, if that's the right word today, may go a little deeper. If you look at America, if you look at the world, we're awash in massive debt. There's been a breakdown in traditional values. There's even been a breakdown in purpose for many individuals. The decline of churches and religious faith and rampant materialism for many people has really been a substitute
1: Yes, I would agree. And I think you raised an interesting point with a decline of traditional uh, sources of meaning. One of the main ones in, in all over the world being religion. Y- you have seen the decline in traditional religion, but I wouldn't say that you've seen a decline in religious thinking, which I might also mm-hmm. say is syn- a synonym to magical thinking. And what you've seen, especially on those who are traditionally uh, Democrat or left leaning in the United States, while you've seen again a decline in church going. You've seen an increase in things like spiritual spirituality, you know, writ large, which includes things like tarot cards, you know, crystals, um, astrology, etc. And you've seen a rise in these things, which are certainly no less absurd, and if not more absurd um, than any other set of religious beliefs, and really lack usually the community ritual and meditative practices uh, that are some of the benefits. Uh, that come from organized religion. So again, you're right, we've seen a decline in meeting as it's traditionally established, but that hasn't led to an increase in rationality. I mean, what I would hope to see is uh, a civilization uh, that sets for itself a goal of increasing and expanding human knowledge and human freedom, uh, and as opposed to human consumption. And I think you need to be explicit about that. Otherwise, inevitably, if there is no sort of uh, telos are, are articulated by the people and, and the state that it rep- they represent, then inevitably that vacuum is filled by the highest bidder. And these days, the highest bidders are companies like Google and Facebook and the advertisers uh, that they sell their uh, marketing reach to. So what you end up with in the absence of an articulated sort of goal is consumerism writ large and, and this narrative that the meaning of life is to satisfy yourself. And the way to do that is through ever increasingly ever-increasing quality consumption. And again, we, we can reference uh, the Bible, and, uh, which I'm fond of doing, even though I, I don't consider myself religious. Man cannot live on bread alone, and that's what we're trying to, trying to feed him only.
2: There's been a lot of criticism of the big social media platforms in Silicon Valley. A lot of that criticism has been coming from the right, the way they shut down a lot of, public discourse and they yanked various people off Twitter and so on and other platforms. Donald Trump
1: was yanked. What do you make out of all of that? Well, it's concerning. And I, and I would urge anyone who cheers uh, the silencing of their opponents uh, to consider carefully how they would feel if their uh, champions were likewise silenced. And I think that's really uh, sort of Cognitive tactic we should all employ is whenever we find ourselves ready and eager to support something to then look at it extra carefully to be sure that we're not just falling victim to motivated reasoning. So when unelected private sector executives decide who can speak and what they say, that's very anti-democratic. I mean, I don't remember voting for Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or any of these uh sort of Silicon Valley Titans. These people do not represent the people, they represent their shareholders and their own interests. And, and they're the primary shareholders of their own company in most cases. So that's a question of free speech here. So what I so I don't I don't think we should necessarily let anything go on these on these platforms, but I want the public and the voters to have a say on what those standards are. So we need to either err on the side of allowing speech uh, or we treat social media companies as publishers and subject them to the same journalistic standards as traditional media. It's, it's really kind of, we need a public input or, or we let anything go is sort of my, uh, to, my short take on that. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours.
0: Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Kids, and the Ad Council.
2: My guest is A.D. Altman, the former Capitol Hill staffer, political scholar, and author of the new book, Animal Town. I'm your host, John Byrne. You look at America and the political map at the East Coast, West Coast, where a lot of the democratic strongholds are. New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston very large liberal bastions, and then you go to the Midwest, the Great Plains, and they tend to be more Republican conservative. Uh, so you kind of describes the red state, blue state divides. Both sides don't seem to communicate very well with each other, and both sides seem to misunderstand each other. You have the global elites, the global coastal elites, and then you have the rest of the country. You take Midwest and those areas, they've seen incredible changes over the last decade or so with jobs outsourced to China, with social problems, with OPI problems, with breakdown in values. So it's very understandable That voters in those areas, many of them who once voted the Democratic Party line, switched their vote in recent elections. There's an economic dislocation. Should that be reined in? Should we have a different economic ideology? For example, Donald Trump played hardball with China and he tweaked and negotiated the terms of the NAFTA. He had tax reform and his goal, we are told, was to bring more jobs back to America, where they had been lost.
1: Well, there's a number of threads there. I mean, one I'll just mention is the sort of red state, blue state divide and my own take on that. So I've had the good fortune to have crossed that sort of urban, rural, uh, provincial, cosmopolitan, religious, secular divide my whole life. So I feel like I'm one of the few in this country who's really in a position um, to understand both sets of views. I grew up on on a farm, a working farm in South Dakota. Uh, I lived there till I graduated uh, high school. I went to college in Florida. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a decade. I went to college in um, my graduate school in in San Diego. And I now live in a a college town outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. So I've been sort of jumping back and forth across this divide my whole life. And the real shame is, is you've got People who are convinced that the other side are their enemies, when in reality, I mean, they don't see their enemies. An enemy isn't the, is a strong word, but the people who are sort of do not have their interests at heart. I mean, you have a tragedy where a rural person in, say, South Dakota or any other red state, uh, who is a working class person, they, you know, they're, they're working hard to support their kids to get by day to day. They pay their bills. They got house payments and car payments and, and, you know, they're saving for college. All those things are really doing the same thing as an urban worker in any major city who works in the service industry or another working class sort of profession. They have the same really economic and I would say largely political interests, but you have an ownership class. Uh, and really, this is the tenth of one percent of uh, wealth in this country that essentially buy politicians of both the left and the right. And I want to be clear about this because, you know, the left has their sort of billionaire boogeyman and, and the right has their billionaire boogeyman. And But most billionaires didn't get to be billionaires by uh, being willy nilly with their money. They are very uh, thoughtful in how they spend it. And they donate equally or, or at least substantially to both sides of the political spectrum, which is why no matter Democrats or Republicans who's in charge, certainly for the last several gener- last generation or so, you've seen accumulating debt, you've seen laws that benefit uh, the ownership class, and you've seen the working class stagnate, and that's the real tragedy. I think from the left is that this is traditionally the group that has working class interests at heart, and they've largely abandoned them in favor of in favor of identity groups. And I think that's why people who live in live in the rural rural counties versus urban centers are convinced that they're opposed, when really their interests couldn't be more similar.
2: You look at the pandemic economy; those who have benefited the most as as been repeatedly said, are the billionaire class. their portfolios who have just gone through the roof, and the middle and working class have suffered. There's also the idea that there are certain interests want to keep Americans divided. America was very divided during the Great Depression, and it could have gone either way. It, we could theoretically have had a communist takeover, although that would have been highly unlikely just the way the country
1: is created and our constitution, Bill of Rights. Well, and I think during that, I mean, there's an interesting point there. So um, what you had was, I think, especially in the mid 20th century, capitalism with a purpose. And that was, I mean, and that's when I think the West and the United States has done best when it said, okay, well, we're this and those guys over there, they're that. In some ways, that's a flaw of our thinking. But When you've got a a communist superpower in Soviet Russia eagerly gobbling up uh, weaker nations in its periphery, you know, that really dominated all of American foreign and economic policy for most of the 20th century. And in that sense, we weren't capitalist uh, just because we liked having new things. It was also a political statement in opposition to communist totalitarianism. I do want to introduce a distinction here in, in that capitalism is not really an ideology, it's a system of economic exchange where p- there's private ownership and profit. Uh, it's, it doesn't tell you what the meaning of political life is. It's not a statement of what our, co- our country is really about, and I think that's where we've kind of gone off the rails in the last couple of decades since the fall of the Soviet Union is we were no longer capitalists by virtue of our opposition to the Soviet Union. So now we're just consumers. And I think that's when we're starting to suffer. I'll just make a point on uh, that you mentioned with regard to the, the elites really benefiting from this pandemic. Uh, it, it couldn't be more true. I, I want Whereas the, the, the working classes suffer, I think I read in the Cincinnati Inquirer or the BBC that 40 percent of people who make less than 40 grand a year in the United States are unemployed. I mean, that's depression Mm -hmm. level uh, unemployment statistics. Meanwhile, we have, according to the Brookings Institution's recent numbers, $98 trillion in private wealth. Uh, That's several times our $21 trillion GDP and several times our $27 trillion debt. I mean, and it's remarkable to me, given all this suffering that you haven't heard a politician of the left or the, or the, the right or the left come out and say uh, a sort of a special circumstance windfall tax might be worth considering here, given that, that those trillionaire and billionaires, their, their funds have increased, I mean, orders of magnitude over the last 30, 40 years, whereas the average American family is more or less on par where they were in the 80s in terms of their uh, real earnings. And yet you, have, you you don't hear a whisper about this. How are we dealing with a crisis? Well, we'll take out more debt. Well, the, if that's not free money. I mean, there's no such thing. That's That's debt that taxpayers will have to pay back for the rest of their lives, myself included, with interest. And the thing that most people also don't really realize when they consider debt is it's, the, the interest goes somewhere and it's, it's, it's other countries, corporations, and wealthy individuals who are buying that debt and pocketing the interest when we pay it back. So I think it's a little bit of an irony that, as usual, you have the old, wealthy, and uh, unhealthy really benefiting while the young, poor, and healthy foot the bill.
2: It's impossible to know at this point where all of this is going to end. Will it end in tears? Will it end well? Hard to see how it will. I mean, this trillions in debt is astronomical in the latest rounds of stimulus and bond buying purchases. And a lot of our debt is held by China, uh, which is another matter that has to be addressed. And China, of course, leaves a lot of question marks. You mentioned capitalism. And then there is free enterprise. I think Americans generally support free enterprise. The kind of capitalism we have, that's a whole other type of issue. Even Republicans, many on the right, have issues with crony capitalism and unfettered capitalism.
1: How do you see that? Are you a free enterprise guy? Are you a patriot Oh, I mean, I, I'm both a patriot and a, and a lover of the United States and uh, an admirer of, of, of Western culture and all that um, it has done for the world. Granted, a lot of that was taking ideas uh, from elsewhere in the world. So I, I'm certainly not a chauvinist in that respect. And I've, I spent a lot of time traveling the world uh, to China, India, East Asia, et cetera, because I did want to learn about these places, realizing that I had been mostly limited um, to the West. So I have great admiration for uh, Chinese culture and and other non-western cultures, but the best characteristics of the of the West have been its rule of law, its democratic values, its equality for women and minorities. I mean, these are things that the West has pioneered and that have benefited the whole world, uh, not to mention the scientific revolution, and enlightenment. So these are values that we are attacking, frankly, uh, <laughs> in schools and universities uh, today, and I think we do so at our peril because, if we look back at history, we don't have to go back too far before it's all misery, starvation, bloodshed, and uh, ignorance. And really, we risk what we have now at our peril, uh, frankly. And, and this is really the theme of my book is, you know, we don't really realize how good we have it. And, and sadly, we sort of forget the lessons of our uh, grandfathers and grandmothers and repeat the same mistakes. And that's, again, really what you see unfolding in my book. And I think what you see unfolding before our eyes.
2: Well, I'm just going to read from some notes I got on Animal Town. It's a good introduction to it, the way you prepped there. In Animal Town's world, reminiscent of George Orwell's animal farm, everybody has read that, predator and prey species of the American prairie you know all about the prairies have built a democratic capitalist society where animals live together in harmony. Oh, how beautiful. Then for the first time in memory, a predator kills a prey. The tragedy triggers a resurgence of species based politics that threatens the very existence of animal town. Tell us about that. This is for kids but should adults, should adults read it? <laughs> uh,
1: so it's, it's written to be a so the prose is accessible and the story should, I hope be appealing to kids as young as 12 and 13 in the same way that uh, animal farm was, but there's much more going on than the surface level events. And in really, you know, anyone from 12 to 13, like I said, to uh, a professor of political science would see something in a, a recognize literary references and, and sort of, political theory discussions um, through this satirical form. And that's why I was attracted to the form because I studied political theory, I have a master's in that, and had initially wanted to write uh, in that that genre, but frankly, very few people read it. uh, And no matter how brilliant your ideas might be, it's very, very difficult to reach anyone. Uh, So I kind of took a page out of Orwell's book and hoped to package complex, sophisticated ideas in a more digestible format that again, is a good story in its own right, I hope. Um, so what you see in a way is Animal Town It sort of takes the narrative arc from Animal Farm and, and completes it while telling a completely different story with different characters. So if you think back to Animal Farm, which we all know and love, um, you ended up with animals that really could just speak, but they lived like animals on this, on this manor farm. Well, over the course of the story, you sort of reach the climax where these animals become like men, and in this case, sort of greedy savages, as embodied by Napoleon the pig, who's really a stand in for Stalin. So that narrative arc is going from innocent animals to uh, sort of crass and greedy men. Well, mine picks up after some sort of imagined gap where you actually have, again, as you said, a capitalist um, uh, democratic society. Modeled on sort of maybe New England towns of the of the early uh, um, of early America, animals live together in harmony. So they already start out like men or like humans uh, in the story. But the narrative arc proceeds through the rise of identitarianism or a species-based politics. In this case, you see that animal the animals who are like men become savage beasts once more, and that's sort of taking the narrative arc. Uh, from Animal Farm all the way to its conclusion. And it's it's a cautionary tale. I mean, we've seen this before throughout history. When you base political uh, power and patronage on immutable identities like uh, species in the book or skin color or religion or sex or whatever the case may be, you create a zero-sum game where your, your, your opponent's victory is your loss and vice versa. And that is not a recipe for compromise. And we've seen it throughout history. We see it today in in places where partisanship is or identitarian partisanship is written into the constitution, like Lebanon, to a degree, to a degree in Israel, um, Ethiopia. Uh, I mean, again, in all the history of Europe is just riddled with identitarian wars. I mean, the religious wars of the uh, 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. I mean, so it's just a tragedy to me that we've learned these lessons. We know that immutable identities, where people have differences in, in, that cannot be changed, or based in policy, lead to disaster. So this is sort of yet another hopeful warning to ideally targeting the younger generation to avoid those mistakes um, that their their parents and grandparents are in the process of making as we speak.
2: Do you think we'll come out of this OK? Because we've gone through a very difficult 12 months. We had riots all over America during the summer and then we had the siege on Capitol Hill. And it's just that both sides are going
1: with each other. There's no middle ground, it seems. Well, and I know the, the tone of our, ne- our, our interview has been a bit negative, and indeed, it's easy to find uh, bad news, but I, I do also want to strike a hopeful and optimistic tone because that is my nature. Um, I, I believe the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I, I mean, we, it's true that there's a global pandemic, but there are no major global wars. I mean, mm-hmm. there are there are skirmishes elsewhere, but there's no reason why we can't continue a prosperous century uh, r- right on right on through 2020 and 21 and through the 2020s, 30s and 40s. I mean, we're we're actually in a fortunate period in history. And Steven Pinker, the has has some psychologists, has some great uh, work on this. I mean, he spends a lot of time just measuring all these all the aspects of human existence, literacy, uh, you know, child mortality, uh, uh, longevity, uh, health outcomes, all these measures of well-being and, and across the, the level of crime has gone down. I mean, so all these things are actually quite positive. Uh, so what, the, what I've been saying is the flesh is strong, the spirit is unwilling. And what I think has happened is the West is sort of in its t- 1000 year cycle, more or less reached its stage where it's exhausted itself creatively and, and politically. And what we're doing instead of we have no more real enemies to fight, so we're just, just turning back in oursel- on ourselves and destroying all the things that really made the West. And again, we do that at our peril because there's a country on the other side of the world that is eagerly snapping up those pow- that power and that influence. And they're using the tools, the scientific method, capitalist economics, individual initiative that were pioneered in the West. But they're using them for very illiberal goals, which is uh, really the dominance of East Asia, And its own populace so again it's we don't live in isolation here in north america and our loss is other countries gain that may not be quite as uh, democratically minded
2: i agree that we should strike an optimistic note while recognizing all the negatives yeah um you look across america the globe the technological advances the productive capacity of american society is enormous. We can produce more than we can consume. On the other hand, the negatives have to be dealt with.
1: And that calls for good leadership. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's why I think what we need in this country is we don't, I, I don't trust a Democrat or a Republican to rule in the public interest. I think these parties are both fundamentally corrupted. And I would. Inc- I will, will never vote for either one again, or at least unless they r- really fundamentally reform. Uh, I will be voting independent or for third parties for the foreseeable future. And I encourage others to do so because I think they're just corrupted. We need a new political party with a new ideology that in my opinion, must be grounded in the pursuit of knowledge, human freedom, a a true democracy where one person does equal one vote and we see it as a good thing when people participate democratically, and three, that's grounded in physical reality that makes no place for sort of magical thinking or any sort of uh, unverifiable narratives in in public discourse and policy. And I'm optimistic that that can happen despite the naysayers who will inevitably say each election, oh, but this one is too important and we only get these two chances and it's got to be one or the other. Well, that, that just isn't the case. I mean, and I look to the example of, of France in this case, En Marche, uh, Macron, president of France's party, is only less than a decade old, and he's swept to power uh, quite rapidly with a message that, while I wouldn't echo 100% of it, it certainly resonated with the French people. And their system politically is, is, is a presidential system with two ho- with two houses of legislature, very similar to our own. So there's nothing to stop us from, establishing a better political order than our own ability to imagine it, in my opinion. And that's what I try and hope to do here. While this book itself is a sort of word of warning, I think if you read between the lines, you can see uh, the basis of a notion of freedom there that that involves certainly democratic elections, but also personal responsibility and uh, access to the physical environment. That's where I hope to see our politics go in the future. But I've lost all faith in either of the major political parties as they exist today.
2: What do you make of climate change? That's a
1: pretty extreme polarizing issue. Well, so I I think it's indisputable. The temperature is going up and it's probable, indeed, likely that human uh, activity is causing that. I mean, you can just look at the CO2 parts per million. It's, It's never increased like that now. That said, it's not certain that this will be an unmitigated disaster. I don't think it's existential, um, but certainly it'll be, it'll cause problems, but we don't know. It's, I mean, the, the earth is a complex system. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, sea ice is, is increasing in Antarctica. It's decreasing in, in, in the Arctic. Well, that was unexpected. So while we have to be aware of what's happening and take steps to avoid the negative effects, I don't think we can be completely certain and everything we do day to day has consequences as well. So what I'm disappointed by is that you don't hear the left or the right talking about nuclear energy. And, and from my own research, that is 100 percent that is clean. And actually, in terms of per capita, it's incredibly safe. The problem is, is it sort of taps into this fault in our psyche where uh, sort of sensational events, we, we overemphasize their importance whereas we just ignore the the exhaust that's coming out of our cars because that's commonplace well one nuclear plant or two in a century melt down and we're convinced now that nuclear is is evil but in reality i mean that's based on existing technology i think where we need to be going and the fact that you don't see the tradi- the left traditionally the sort of greener party talking about that is is because largely they've been accepting a lot of donations from the oil and gas business to try and push natural gas, which is while cleaner than, you know, petroleum and and coal, it's still a fossil fuel. I mean, we're still literally burning, uh, gas from decomposed living creatures that existed on earth millions and millions of years ago. I mean, it's a very primitive thing that we're really doing here. And I think we need to be thinking a little bit more inventively, uh, to deal with it rather than just just, we're on this side and you're on that side. And it doesn't matter whether either side is correct. We're just going to fight you because because that's what side we're on. It's not constructive. Well, we already
2: see that a lot of jobs will be lost and are at stake under the new Biden green energy policy. Uh, That, to me, sounds very extreme, the way he swiftly moved in to shut down the Keystone
1: pipeline. Yeah, indeed. This is another case where... I think, you know, we can agree it would be nice if we didn't rely on fossil fuels, but we can't just wish that into existence and real people suffer when fossil fuel prices increase in the meantime. So, again, I would just reiterate, I wish in his energy policy he were talking about nuclear, but he so far in my in, in my assessment has not. And I would just come back to, I don't see any other, I mean, yes, you can develop um, wind and solar. And I've personally invested in uh, wind projects uh, in my home state where there's really a surplus of wind, but, you know, (laughs) they don't tell you this very often, but if we harvested all the wind that comes, blows across the United States and, and absorbed all the sunlight that we think we know how to, I mean, we'd still be far from our energy needs. And I think really what you see sort of latent in a lot of the environmentalism of the left is It's not environmentalism so much as it is anti-capitalist. And they really want to, because the only way they could achieve their goals without nuclear would be to massively decrease consumption. And that's not something they're telling the American people that they're going to have to ration power and and things of that nature. And again, we're seeing today, I mean, our grid, it's not a surplus. I mean, today in Texas, people are freezing to death because the the power grid has failed them. I mean, and that's happening all over the country. So uh, to tell people that, we can just do this all by wind and solar. And it's it's just not true.
2: So you worked on Capitol Hill, then you had your own consulting firm, and now you are... I guess some kind of a free spirit. You're certainly
1: an author. How are you promoting your book? Um, well, to be clear, I just want to clarify. I didn't have my own consulting firm. I was. I worked for a startup and 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 built and led the commercial practice of that company. It wasn't my company, um, but I did that for eight years. Like I said, um. So then, well, so I, I retired from that position or re- resigned from that position in in 2017 and took a world tour. As I mentioned, I had only really traveled in uh, Europe and South America, my education was largely focused on Western political theory and and psychology, although psychology is global. Uh, So I wanted to go and see those parts of the world that I had not, and I spent seven months literally circumnavigating the globe um, through through East Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, and South America. And that was sort of, for me, a last test or a penultimate test of my political, ideological, and theoretic views. I had studied political theory in graduate school and as an undergrad. And then as I was working in this consultancy, it was my hobby just to continually uh, consume information because I was looking for what is the basis of a modern 21st century political society? What what we have now is, is, is broken in one way or the other. And I wanted to go travel the world to put those ideas to the test and see if they stood up. Um, to the new information I would would gain by visiting, again, these ancient civilizations in Asia, Africa, and and beyond. Um, I came back more convinced than ever in the efficacy of what I've called like sort of the four principles of political society, namely scientific knowledge. And this is, again, verifiable, based in logic and reason. It has no leaps of faith involved. That's really the only kind of knowledge that there is. Human freedom. And again, you'll see that knowledge and freedom are very tied together because you actually can't act freely unless you have requisite knowledge. Um, three, as I mentioned, democracy, and four, physicality, a limitation to uh, the physical world. So since that trip, I've, I've been writing and, and doing odd things here and there, some consulting work uh, part-time, um, doing some teaching as well. Um, but I've, I've written this book, and I also have a sort of a political theory-focused memoir that's on a shelf uh, awaiting publication uh, at some future, hopefully not too distant date, English as a Second Language Students at a local high school. And that's something that's been really rewarding um, to see people who are still excited to be in America and, and help them uh, uh, learn the language uh, pass their classes and uh, adjust to American culture. So it's been a a real boon to me to be able to do that part time as well. So you're a very
2: optimistic and yet just set a, a somber cautionary tone, which we must be all aware of. And the name of your book is Animal Town. How has it been received by the critics?
1: Um, Well, you know, the reviews I've seen thus far have been positive. um, And it's only been out for just under a month now. So uh, the promotion is still ongoing. But what I've heard thus far is that it what and what I like to think myself is that this book is unique in that it treats um, both sides of the political battle, if you will, even handedly, it's a very sort of balanced book, and that there are characters that parallel one another on both sides of the spectrum. And they both have sort of uh, ill-founded belief systems that really mirror one another. It's just the language changes. So, and I, again, I think that's largely what you see today in politics: is both sides have their own sort of parallel absurdities that they're committed to dogmatically and will not allow discussion on. And this book shows what happens when uh, you have you try and base uh, politics and and win elections on on those kinds of ideas. So, <clears throat> it's it's a book that is again has certainly disturbing and and elements to it. But again, between the lines, there are the nuggets of a way forward, I think. Congratulations. A job well done. A.D.
2: Altman is the author of Animal Town. He has been my guest. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, John.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973 664 9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.